All right, let's uh, open our time with prayer together that God will bless our time as we think about these things. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for this time. Thank you for the opportunity that we have again to think about your word and to think about the glorious uh, truth of election. Pray that now you would guide us by your spirit into all truth. You'd forgive us of our sins and bless us, we pray, for we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we're continuing to think about the first head of doctrine on unconditional election. Um, we've come to Article 13 and four, Articles 13 and 14. Um, so we ended last time uh, by asking the question, how can we have the assurance that we are elect? Um, can you have assurance of election? Um, and the answer that we gave was, yes, you can be, but not by inquisitively searching into the hidden decrees of God. So you can't get into the mind of God in eternity to know whether or not you're elect. So if you can't do that, then how can you gain assurance of election? Well, by looking to the unmistakable fruits of election. That election is the fountain from which all of God's graces flow. And so you can look and see, do you have the fruit that election brings forth in the life of a believer? So we've talked about true faith in Christ, a childlike fear of God, a godly sorrow for sins, a hunger and thirst for righteousness, um, and the other things that scripture talks about in that vein. Um, And so we can have that assurance, we said, but not by looking at the decree, but by looking at the fruit in our life. Um, And then we ask the question, okay, well then what should the assurance of election produce in the life of the Christian? Is the assurance of election a good thing? Um, Or is the assurance of election a bad thing? Um, Now we might wonder, why would you even ask that question? Um, isn't assurance always a good thing? It isn't um, a lack of assurance always a bad thing. When we want to help people become more assured. Um, and it's not just for, you know, the pastor's job security, that lack of assurance, you know, then I've got a, it's a cottage industry, right? Then I get to assure people. Uh, no, I mean, the lack of assurance is a bad thing. But they had to say that back then because Rome taught that one of the most dangerous doctrines of the Reformed faith was assurance, Um, that it was one of the most dangerous things that the reform taught, was that you could be assured of your faith. Because they said, what will happen to people who are assured of their faith? They won't think they need the church. They won't think they need the grace of God. Um, In a sense, it's one of the things that Martin Luther was worried about in his 95 Theses. He said, you know, people don't understand what an indulgence does for you. They've been told it's a get-out-of-hell-free card. And that all I need to do is buy this, and I'm good. And he said, that's not actually what an indulgence is, and people don't understand that. That's how it's being marketed to them. But they're not actually going to understand it aright, and it's going to make them not do the things that God wants them to do, like confess their sins and receive absolution. Because if you think you bought a get-out-of-hell-free card and could go now do whatever you want to do, that's going to cause you to live in such a way that it's going to be detrimental. That was one of the things Luther was worried about. Um, It it can still happen in a similar way today. I've talked to people who minister among homeless communities and will say, you know, someone came through here and said to them, all you need to do is pray the sinner's prayer and you'll be saved. And so now when I come to them and try to tell them, you know, you need to put your faith and trust in Christ, they say, no, no, I'm good. Someone already came through and told me, you pray the prayer you're in. I prayed the prayer I'm in. 
So I don't need all of this anymore. Um, that's what Rome was worried about. And that's what they were teaching that a lack of assurance is good because what will you do if you're not sure? You'll go to the church to get more grace because the church is dripping with grace. There's grace everywhere in the Roman Catholic Church. There's grace to be had. And they said a lack of assurance will cause you to keep going and getting grace. If you have assurance, it's going to make you either lax about how you live or arrogant about how you stand before God. It'll either make you someone who doesn't care how they live or it'll make you a Pharisee. Um, And so actually lack of assurance is a good thing. And the Reform said, of course, that's not true. Um, Assurance is a wonderful thing. And there is fruit that assurance produces in the life of the Christian. There's, there's fruit that assurance produces, and there's particularly fruit that assurance of election produces. And that's what Article 13 talks about. Uh, the first head of doctrine, um, Article 13, is what we want to look at. Um, then we're also going to look at 14, how, we, how this doctrine is to be taught. But we want to first think about the fruit of this assurance. So is it, is it the case that it produces the fruit of laxity and arrogance? Is that what this assurance does? And this article says, no, that's not true. Um, Article 13 says, um, I'm on page 262 of the Forms and Prayers book, and I didn't write down the other references. So, what? 899 in the hymnal? Okay, thank you. And 150 in the little book. Now you're all covered. There's no excuses. Okay, um, Article 13 says, in their awareness and assurance of this election... God's children daily find greater cause to humble themselves before God, to adore the fathomless depths of his mercy, to cleanse themselves, to give fervent love in return to him who first so loved them, who first so greatly loved them. This is far from saying that this teaching concerning election and reflection upon it make God's children lax in observing his commandments or carnally self-assured. Um, what, what is the fruit that election actually does produce in God's people? Well, we have four things listed here. The first is humility. Every time we think about the electing grace of God, it's a reminder to us that everything we have of God flows out of the fountain of his electing grace. It was his choice of us that everything else flows from. Um, and, and that's how we came to election in the first place. Remember we said, we said, okay, well, faith is a gift. Well, you, need, you know, you need faith to believe, and faith is a gift. And so where does that gift come from? We're just working back um, in Scripture, and it, and it comes from God, His eternal decree of election. And so from God comes the gift, comes the gift of faith, and everything else that's the fruit of faith. Right, our good works... And everything else that we say is is a fruit of faith. And so the more we reflect on our election, the more we reflect on the fact that everything that we have flows to us from our God. Um, That that faith, that good works, that perseverance, it all ends in glory. Right, from faith to glory, from beginning of, of our spiritual life to the end, it all comes to us from God. It all flows to us from the fountain of his grace. And so if we, if we rightly think about that, far from making us arrogant, it's going to make us humble to say, what do we have that we've not been given? Look how everything I have 
flows to me from God's sovereign choice. There's nothing that I have that I've not been given of God. That I've not been given of God in Christ Jesus from before the foundation of the world. Far from making someone arrogant, it's going to make us more and more humble. It's going to give us greater daily, we daily find greater cause to humble ourselves before God. To realize that we had nothing, we deserve nothing but his wrath, but we've been given everything in Christ. Right? We've gone from being people who deserve his wrath to being people who get nothing but all that's Christ's. Right? We go from nothing to everything. And so the more we think about it, the more that's going to cause us to find reason to humble ourselves and to say, what a great God that he would do something like this for a wretch like me. Um, you see how this rightly taught, rightly understood, that everything flows to us from God's sovereign choice is going to make us more humble, not more arrogant. To realize we have everything from him and it's completely undeserved. It flows only out of his mercy and grace. Um, it's going to be daily cause for us to have humility. Um, humility is the first one, then adoration. We recognize that we don't have anything in ourselves and we have everything from God. What is that going to cause us to do? I, I love this, this phrase, to adore the fathomless, depths, fathomless depth of his mercy. We can't really understand what it is to be a God who is merciful like God is merciful. We struggle with that every time we have to be merciful to someone else. Right? We, we understand how difficult it is to have just a modicum of mercy to someone else when we've been sinned against. Right? That it's very hard for us to show true forgiveness and mercy. Um, we're good at applying the law. Right? An eye for an eye. I'm better at that than I am at showing mercy. Uh, we know how hard it is for us to show mercy. We have no concept of the depth of the mercy of God. Right? Because when I'm sinned against, you've sinned against the eternal majesty of Bill Godfrey. There's no such thing, right? There, there is no eternal majesty of Bill Godfrey. There, there's Bill Godfrey the worm. That's who you've sinned against. Right? And so the, the magnitude of that sin is very small. And I should remember that when people sin against me. We should all remember that. We're not, we're not these great august beings. We are sinners. And the person who sinned against us, we probably have done the exact same kind of sin to someone else. right? Um, so the mercy I need to show when someone sins against me is nothing compared to the mercy God needs to show as the supreme majesty on high who's been sinned against by the creatures he's made. Right? That, that's what... That's a question that caused R.C. Sproul in a question and answer once to yell, what's wrong with you people? Um, at all these things when somebody had posed the question, well, you know, why is just God's justice so severe? And he said, severe? <laughs> like, the, the worm he made out of the dust of the earth rebelled against him as God, and yet he didn't strike him dead. He let him live, and he sent his son to save him. And now you're saying that his judgment is too severe? Like, what's wrong with you people? Um, I was there, he yelled at us, and it was very uncomfortable, because everyone's like, ha ha, oh, he's not kidding. He's <laughs> legitimately angry. Um, this is kind of scary. <laughs> um, because we don't really, like his point was, we don't really get it. We don't, we don't really get what it is to forgive sins, that it was his mercy to, to be willing to send his son, who's of far more value than we are, to die. We'll get to that later in the Canons of Dort, but his death is of an infinite value. 
right? The death of the Son of God for Jesus to die, that's a life that is so valuable that it's sufficient to pay for all of our sins, all of our hell, and as people would say, and you could do 10,000 worlds besides this world. He would pay for that too. You can't exhaust the value of that life. That life was given for my life. That life was given for your life. It's not an even trade. His life is worth a lot more than my life. And his father was willing to give it to pay that cost. He was willing to lay it down. Right? That is the fathomless mercy of God. We might die for a good person or in a good cause. Right? Uh, We just had Veterans Day and we think about those who served and who serve and are willing to go serve on behalf of their fellow citizens and how thankful we are. We take a day to, to recognize that. We take another day to recognize those who gave their lives, right? That, it, that it's, it's a noble thing to die in a good cause for a good person. Jesus didn't die for good people. He died for enemies. He was willing to lay down his precious life for our lives. And that's, that's, the, that's the magnitude of what Scripture reminds us of. There's a depth to the mercy of God that we can't probe. We can't get to the bottom of it, but we can adore him because he's shown it to us. Um, that, That we would know the surpassing love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, right? It's kind of an interesting prayer to want to know something that that surpasses knowledge. Um, we can't fully understand it. We can't fully comprehend it, right? We can't plumb the depths of it, but we can adore him for it. For the limited amount we can understand of it, we can adore him for it. Yes? And uh, I learned that the indulgences actually do the opposite because they're a justified of sin. Yeah, I mean, when we come up with our own inventions, it, it's hard to really glorify God through them um, because we made gods of our own image. I, I served my first pastorate in Torrance. I served with a guy who had been who'd grown up Roman Catholic, and he used to talk about how he and his brothers went to Catholic school and they would have to go to confession on a regular basis. The nuns would make him go. And he said, you know, you learn all these tricks to, you know, if you, if you lied to the nun in class... You know you're going to go tell the priest that you lied to the nun, but you know the priest is going to take that very seriously, so he's going to nail you with some big penance to have to do. So he said, you learn how to kind of slide it underneath another sin when you confess it, so he won't really realize it's so big, and so he won't give you as big a penalty. So you say something kind of a little bit bigger, you know, well, I got in a fight, and I lied, and I did some other things. You try to like bury the lie underneath lying to the nun underneath something else, so that when he says, okay, well, for what you did, you need to do 10 Our Fathers and say 10 Hail Marys, then you're like, oh, I got, I got away with it. Like, he forgave me. I'm forgiven. I got, I said, technically, I said it, and you said I'm forgiven, so I'm good. Um, it, it, it ends up being like you're trying to get away with it. And he said, you know, we were good at it. My brothers and I would sit and talk about, like, how do you, how do you hide a sin and slip it by the priest? You know, it's like a hockey player trying to like hit the five hole between the goalie's leg. And, you know, if you can get him to say your sins are forgiven you, technically I confessed it. Technically you forgave me. And you said only to do say 10 Our Fathers. So I went and said them. I'm good. Um, you know, that, that was the kind of thing. So yeah, I mean, human inventions lead to reinforcing bad human traits, right? 
And that's why when we, when we turn to God and recognize, I can't, I can't confess my sins, I can't do penance for my sins, I can't take away my own sins. The minute you recognize that God has to do it all or it doesn't get done, that's what leads to humility and adoration. Um, to adore God for being the kind of God who is willing to forgive us who've sinned against him so grievously, even though he's going to have to pay all the cost of it. You know, that, that's how the work of Christ is described. He repaid what he did not take away. He restored what he took not. Yeah, Paul. Right. Yeah, I mean, when we, when we try to compare sinner to sinner, there's always going to be someone else that we can hold up as a worse example and feel good about ourselves. Right, and that's that's what the Pharisee is doing with the tax collector. That's what we tend to do. You know, you hear people say stuff like, well, I, "I'm going to go to hell. I'm no Hitler." It's like, okay, well, yeah, Hitlers don't go to hell, and you might not look bad against Hitler, but the comparison is not you and Hitler. The comparison is you and Jesus. You have to look like Jesus to go to heaven, um, and that shows us how far short we fall. Um, and, you know, that, that's why Gerhardus Voss once said. The point of the law is not to look at the law and then look at my life and say, am I law-like? He said, what does the law show us? He says, the law shows us what it's like to be God-like. Um, and I might be able to convince myself that I'm law-like. It's a lot tougher sell to convince myself that I'm God-like or that I'm Christ-like. And that's what we really have to be. We have to be as holy as Christ was holy to stand under the scrutiny of the law. I and mean, once we do that, we see how far short we fall of the righteousness that God requires. And that's why he had to do it all. And that's why it has to flow out of his fathomless mercy. And that's why even though we can't understand the depths of it, it's like a hole so deep that you drop a stone, wait for the sound, but you never hear it. Um, that, that's the depth of his mercy. We can't plumb the depths of it, but we can adore him for how great it is, even though we can't fully understand it. And that's one of the great fruits of meditating on election. It causes me to praise the God who I owed everything to and who owed me nothing, that he provided me everything that I might be saved. Um, it, it causes us to adore our God, um, and it causes us to cleanse ourselves. Okay, now... Our reformed sensibilities are firing, like spider sense, right? Um, it's like, eh, I, don't, I don't like that. <laughs> I don't cleanse myself. Um, I need to be cleansed, right? I don't like this at all. I thought this guy was reformed. I thought these were the canons of Dort. Um, well, let's think about what, what, is God, what does God's word say that, that his people do? First um, John 3, 3 through 10. I think this is what this point is getting at. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he, Jesus, appeared to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. 
No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Um, now, there's a way to read 1 John that makes us not like 1 John very much, which is to constantly be weighing ourselves in the scales of 1 John and constantly be thinking what John is saying is always, who are you, who are you, who are you? But what John is really doing is he's coming and responding to Gnostic teachers that were confusing everybody about what it means to be truly a Christian. And what John is doing is saying, no, it's actually very simple. It's not confusing. You don't need someone to come to you with the secret knowledge. Right? There were teachers at his time saying, I've got the secret knowledge. I will tell you how to be a Christian. It, you know, For $50 or a few installments, I will tell you how to have the secret knowledge and become a true Christian. Um, and John was saying at the beginning of his gospel, right? I walked with him. I talked with him. I saw him. We touched him. He was very clear about how you become a Christian. You put your trust in him. And it's very clear what happens for people who put their trust in him. If you, if you love him, you walk with him. If you hate him, you don't walk with him. Um, and he's just making it very clear. And he's saying to us, no one who hopes... And that, so if you read it as John trying to assure you of what's true, not trying to weigh you in the scales of it, it takes on a different meaning. Right? John is stating facts. Right? So when he says... No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. That's not a call to action there. That's a statement of fact. No one born of God, that's good news, in other words. That's the gospel. No one who's born of him keeps on sinning. That's not, that's not what characterizes you. You're characterized by righteousness, not by sin. You're characterized by Christ, not by the devil. He's trying to encourage people. And he says, now, people who are like that, what do you do? Everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. We don't make a practice of sinning. We recognize that that's out of keeping with who we are. And so John is making it simple for us. He's not making it complicated. John is not meaning to come and make people... You know, I think some people think the purpose of John writing is to, un, is to disquiet everyone. You know, everyone who keeps on sinning, they're the devil. Everyone who purifies themselves, they're not. Who are you? John's not doing that. He's coming to a people who've already been disquieted by teachers and saying, no, 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 no. I'm going to make it very simple for you. Godly people behave in godly ways. Godly people relate to sin in godly ways. Godly people hate sin. They don't make a practice of sinning. They try to purify themselves. That's what godly people do. And that's what you should do. Um, we know that we can't make ourselves clean. Isn't that, that's not what John says. He says, purify yourself, but you've been saved. Right? Purify yourselves, but you've been saved. You don't purify yourself to be saved. You purify yourself because you're saved. You purify yourself because you belong to Christ. You purify yourself because these things don't abide in you. And so John, John is free to say, yeah, we, we try to be better. We try to be better. But he's like, it's not confusing who's who. If you love righteousness, you belong to God because everybody who's born of God loves righteousness. 
Sometimes we look at these verses and say, but I'm not sure I measure up. That shows you love righteousness, right? That, that shows that you love holiness because you look at your life and say, I don't think it's as holy as I'd like to see it. That's a good sign. Otherwise, you're like the Pharisees saying, thank God I'm not like other men. Um, so we always have, this always should drive us to try to purify ourselves more and more. Why? Because we're trying to clean ourselves up because God hasn't cleaned us enough? No, it's because we know that that's what he loves. It's what we hope in that causes us to purify ourselves. It's what we hope in that makes us want to clean up our act. It's what we hope in that makes us want to do those things because what are we, at, what are we really trying to do? To show grateful love. What is the motivation of the Christian who's assured we cleanse ourselves and give fervent love in return to him who first so greatly loved them? I don't clean myself up to try to make myself acceptable to God. I try to clean myself and make myself pure because I know that's what God loves. And what I'm trying to do is return love to God for how he's loved me. And how do we show our love to God? By putting our faith and trust in his son and walking after the example he set for us. That's what God loves. It's gratitude that motivates us to obey. And that's the thing that people have have struggled with when it comes to motivation for the Christian life. People have always thought duty will drive you further than gratitude. And the word teaches us the exact opposite. That it's gratitude that will drive you where duty will fail you. Um, you know, that, that's what the early church struggled with in Acts 15. They said, are we going to put these people under the same burden of the yoke that none of us could bear? Are we going to go back to duty? That, that's what Paul said, having begun by the Spirit, are you going to go back to the flesh? Are, are you going to go back to duty? To making yourself something you're not? No, you don't have to do that as a Christian. You just are, what is our goal in life? To show our gratitude to God by doing the things that we know he loves. Right? That, that's how we show love to people in general. Right? By doing the things that we know that they love. Um, as expressions of the fact that we love them. Right? Um, we, we do those things. And so the authors of the Kansas Order rightly saying, looking at God's word, what does being assured that you belong to him, what does that produce in Christians? What fruit does that bear? It's humility, adoration, a seeking to be pure, and a grateful love, trying to return love to God who's loved us so greatly. Right? This gratitude is a much more powerful motivation. And the reason we, we have so much trouble with that is because, again, we're wired for the law. We understand, do this and you live, don't do it and you die. That's why people love steps, right? People love it if you say, do you want to have the same confident hope that David had in Psalm 3? Here are the, here are the five things you need to do to get that kind of hope. We would all get our pencils ready to write it down. Because we're like, yeah, you're speaking my native language now. I'm a good doer. Give me something to do. I understand the law. Right? The problem is we've never been able to do. We, we've always failed to do the list. If I gave you five things to do, you'd fail to do them. I would fail to do them. 
If I gave you three things to do, you'd fail to do them. If I gave you one thing to do, you'd fail to do it. Um, we failed when we were perfect in the garden. We can't start from perfect and succeed. We're not going to be able to start from failure and succeed. We're not, we, we're not going to be able to start from fallenness and succeed. Right? We, we've shown what kind of people we are. It's not good. Um, we can't make ourselves what we're not, but what we can do is look at the God who's loved us and who's made us everything and out of gratitude for what he's done, seek to live a life that's pleasing to him. And that's freeing. Because I'm not trying to love him to make myself something I'm not. I don't have to look at, at First John and say, I'm in the devil's camp, I need to get out of it into Christ's camp. No, we just listen to John and say, no, you're in Christ's camp. You just need to do the things that people who are in Christ's camp do. Which is to continue to love godliness and do the things that God loves. Because you love him. He loved you and did something for you. So if you love him, what are you going to try to do? Something out of gratitude for him. Not to earn something, but because you are his child. And so if you, if you read First John, that it completely turns it on its head for the way we typically tend to read it where John is just trying to make it very clear for us and says, says very simple, straightforward things. I'm writing these things to you so that you don't sin. We want to be the kind of people who don't sin. And then his very next statement is, but if anybody does sin, we have an advocate before the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one, who's the propitiation not just for our sins, but for the sins of the whole world. You need someone to stand between you and the wrath of God when you sin. There's someone who can do it. For you, for the whole world, Jesus Christ. So that, that's, the, that's the whole point of the Christian life. We're trying to purify ourselves. We're trying not to sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate before the Father. Christ has died. He's died for our sins. And so we're, we're free to obey the law now. Because it can't threaten me anymore. Um, it just is a law that shows me how to love God. And so that's what this will lead to. And the canons are absolutely right. It does not lead to laxity in observing his commandments or people who are carnally self-assured. That's not the fruit of being assured of your election. What is that the fruit of? Um, that's the fruit of being a hypocrite or an unbeliever. Right? That's the fruit of people who by God's just judgment we read, by God's just judgment, this does usually happen to people who casually take for granted the grace of election or engage in idle and brazen talk about it, but are unwilling to walk in the ways of the chosen. Who are, who are the people that don't walk in the way that God... It's not the true believers. It's the, it's the unrepentant and the hypocritical. Right? And we, we know that that is always going to be mixed in with the true church. The church is always going to be believers, unbelievers, and hypocrites. Right? People who do truly believe, people who don't believe now, who may never believe or who might one day believe, and people who are hypocrites who pretend to believe but they don't. Right? And so when someone says, well, look at how there are people in the church who presume on the grace of God and live however they want to live. What do you say about those people? Um, I say to those people, repent and believe in Jesus Christ because you don't understand grace if that's how you live. Right? There's always going to be that in the life of Christian. And that's why when we survey the scriptures, we'll say, well, why does it sound like 
you know, why does it sound like here salvation can't be lost? And why does it sound like here it can be lost? And why does it sound here like this? And why does it sound here like that? It can be very confusing. But what we just have to remember is the word of God is being addressed to the whole congregation. And where, what do you know about the congregation? There are people who believe they need to hear your salvation can't be lost. Right? There are hypocrites who need to be called to repentance and faith. And there are unbelievers who are now, maybe they're going to come to faith, maybe they're not, but right now they don't belong to Christ and need to be called to believe as well. That's the parable of the sower, right? The same seed is scattered everywhere, but it falls on different kinds of soil. And so you scatter the seed everywhere, but you have to address the different kinds of people. Right? Um, that's why, you know, little kids sing, don't let Satan hit out. I'm going to let it shine. Right? It's not because it's, it's like awful theology that, you know, that we need to be hyper-Calvinists in the way we relate to our kids or something. Um, no, but what is that saying? The scriptures warn us. The devil's rolling around like a prowling lion seeking whom he may devour. So you have to resist him, firm in the faith. Right? So we, we can't get put off by things and we can't be so reformed that we can't say reformed things like I'm trying to purify myself. I'm trying to purify myself as he is pure. Um, or that I can't say to someone, repent and believe. Um, so we, we need the whole sum of scripture. The trick is reading what applies to me. Right? And not, and not saying I have a true faith in Jesus but I'm reading these apostasy passages in Hebrews like that's me too. Right? But that's the reason the writer of Hebrews, knowing his congregation and preaching a sermon, can say, I have hope of better things for you. Things that lead to salvation. Um, and that's why we need to have people who know us and can apply these things to us as people. Right? Um, someone might say, how do, you, how do you know how to teach this? Because what should I say? Should I be assured of my election or not? Well, I kind of need to know you to say whether or not you should be assured, right? I need to be able to look at your fruits and say, and I've had to do that in my ministry, say, given what I've seen, I think you need to repent and believe in the Lord. And there's people that I've talked to plenty of times who I've said, brother or sister, you're worried about nothing. You believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. You seek to glorify him in your life. You're doubting, but you don't have a reason to be doubting. Trust in the Lord. Um, but you need to know people to say that. And that's why when, it, when Article 14 says, how do we teach this? How do you teach election properly so you make sure uh, you get it right? Well, you have to teach it because God taught it. Right? That's, that's the simple message of Article 14. You have to teach it because God's word teaches it. Armenians had said, maybe it's better if we just leave this off. This is a hard doctrine. Right? Trust me, I'd rather leave it off sometimes because it's... Because it's hard, and I'm, I'm going to go all the way to my time, so you can't have any time for questions. So we're in a run-out-the-clock situation. Um, no, but why, why, do we, why do we teach this? Well, look, the Bible teaches it, so it's important. It's in the Bible, and, and as the article goes through and says, just as by God's wise plan, this teaching concerning divine election has been proclaimed through the prophets, Christ himself, and the apostles in Old and New Testament times, and has subsequently been committed to writing in the Holy Scriptures... So also today in God's church, for which it was specifically intended, this teaching must be set forth. Right? God gave it to us for a reason. It's taught in the scriptures. It was recorded in the scriptures so that it could be taught to us. 
It was taught to people in Old Testament times. They needed it. It was taught to people in New Testament times. They needed it. It was written down for the church. We need it. So it should be taught. But how must it be taught? Um, and that's, that's very important as well. With a spirit of discretion, in a godly and holy manner, at the appropriate time and place, without inquisitive searching into the ways of the Most High. How are we to teach this doctrine? With the right attitude. That we're dealing with things that are, in some ways, beyond us. Dealing with things that are, require discretion, that have to be handled reverently and carefully. Right? There's, there's a lot of talk, and you know, it's become a popular thing to have these theology discussion groups on Facebook or you know, things, and people just throw these, these weighty things around like they're easy, and they slam each other for not understanding them. This is not the kind of thing that this should be tossed around. It has to be treated with a spirit of discretion. It has to be treated reverently and carefully. We have to have the right attitude. We have to teach it at the right time. You have to know when is the appropriate time and place to teach this doctrine. We don't want to become one-trick ponies in the church, always teaching the same thing over and over and over again. We have a whole counsel of God that needs to be taught, which means there's a time and place to teach election, and there's a time and place where that's not the best time to teach election. We've talked a little bit about that. If you're going out door-to-door to do evangelism, you probably don't want to knock on someone's door and say, are you elect? Um, they're going to go, elect, what are you talking about? Like, that's not the time or place. So there's a right time and place for it that requires discretion as well. Um, we have to teach it with the proper respect. We have to understand our own limitations. Some Calvinists are accused of being of being arrogant because we act like we know everything. I know some things about election from God's word, but I don't know everything about it. Um, there are fathomless depths that we can't plumb, and we have to have the right respect for it. Our prayer should be the prayer of Psalm 131.1. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. There are some Calvinists who act like none of these things are too great and marvelous for them. They're pretty great and marvelous and they can figure it out. Um, We have to understand there are things that are too great and too marvelous for us when we talk about the things of the Lord and we need to have the right heart about going to them. We have to respect our own limitations and we have to always teach this doctrine for the proper purpose. Why does God want you to be taught this doctrine? Why do we teach it? What is the hope for the people of God? And this this could almost apply to anything we do. What are the two things we want you to learn in election? That God is to be glorified for what he's done. That we're saved because of him. Because of what he did in, in eternity that played itself out in history and came along and applied itself to me by the work of the Holy Spirit and will be applied to me for eternity. That is a divine work of God, and it's all to his glory. There's not a part of it that belongs to me. It's for his glory. Um, That's the purpose for teaching election, to glorify God as the God who chose a people in Christ before the foundation of the world, to be holy and blameless before him. It's to glorify God and to comfort his people. 
Notice that that's how Article 14 ends. How is it to be taught? This must be done for the glory of God's most holy name and for the lively comfort of his people. Why, why do we teach this doctrine not just to glorify God's name, but so that God's people can be comforted to know that God loved you before the foundation of the world? There are lots of people that really struggle with the question, does, could God really love a person like me? Um, I know me better than anyone else knows me. Um, and, and you'll meet people who think, I don't think God could love a person like me. Um, and it's a glorious thing to be able to tell them, you know what, God loved you so much that he chose you in him before the foundation of the world, that he set the world into motion with the purpose of saving you. Then in a profound sense, history has gone forward so that you might be gathered into the kingdom of Christ. Right? Why has the world gone on? Why didn't Jesus come in 1950? Why didn't Jesus come in 1900? Why didn't Jesus come in 1850? How long can we go on? Um, what's my point? He didn't come in 1850 or in 1900 because you hadn't been gathered into the elect yet. Because Jesus died for you and you weren't saved yet. The world went on to this point for us. For you. That's comforting to know. That's how much God loves you, that his kingdom would not be complete without you, that his son died for you and the flock would not be complete until you've been gathered in. And there are other people in the world that are like that, who don't know him yet, and who Jesus died for them, and they have to be gathered in. And there's a day coming when the last one for whom Jesus died will be gathered, and then the church will be complete, and then he'll come. History, time marches on for us. That's how much Jesus loves you. That's how much God loves you. The world's being moved to the end of saving you and saving all of our brothers and sisters for whom Christ died. That's how much God loves you. If you can't draw comfort from that, I don't know what you can draw comfort from. God loved you so much that he's moved heaven and earth to save you. You personally. Um, that should be comforting to God's people. And I hope we draw lively comfort from it. Uh, let's, let's pray and ask God's blessing. Father in heaven, we pray that you would continue to humble us with that knowledge that we didn't deserve anything but your wrath, and yet we received everything in your Son. Lord, we can't possibly plumb the depths of that saving work, but we can adore you, and we do adore you for the amazing grace that you have shown to us in Christ. We pray that you would continue to Help that drive us out of a spirit of love to you, to want to be pure even as Jesus is pure, and to work to cleanse ourselves and to hope in him. Help us return fervent love to you for the love you've shown upon us. And help us, Lord, to teach these things with the right attitude at the proper time, with the proper respect to the doctrine and acknowledging our own limitations. Always so that your name would be glorified, your most holy and glorious name would be glorified and that your people would be comforted. Help comfort us to know that you have loved us with an everlasting love. Um, and may we continue to apply that to our hearts that we might be comforted in Christ. Hear us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, thank you. You're dismissed.